Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Page 968 in these pew Bibles. At the end of the service today, during the closing hymn, uh, we are going to have a time of covenant renewal for our those of you who are members. This is a time when we as individual members or as families uh, can turn in a pledge card our financial commitment to the ministry of this church for the next calendar year, in a sense renewing our commitment to the ministry, and I'll say more about that later in the service. A book which has helped me in studying the whole area of, of, of money and stewardship as a Christian, uh, without a doubt, is a book that was written about 20 years ago by Randy Alcorn called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Then he wrote a very brief book called The Treasure Principle. And about three years ago, I picked up a book by Wesley Wilmer entitled God and Your Stuff. Kind of a colloquial title for a book that really looks a lot at history and how Christians have treated money and possessions uh, during that time. So those three books. But years ago, this church sent me along with a handful of others uh, to Eastern Europe for a vision trip. It was with four pastors and uh, a representative for Mission to the World from our denomination. We went to several countries, including the Ukraine and Romania and Poland, and we were to read some books in advance of that trip to give us a better understanding of the countries we would be visiting. And in preparation for visiting Poland, one of the books we were to read, and I did read, was Schindler's List. At the end of that book, or if you saw the movie, there is a very uh, heart-wrenching scene in which Oscar Schindler, the man in Poland who had paid out a personal fortune to spare the lives of many Jews from the Nazis, at the end of the book, he looks at his car, he looks at a gold fountain pen that he had in, a, in his pocket, and he is moved with regret that he did not give more even give those things more of his possessions to save more lives. Now, Oscar Schindler had used his opportunity far better than most, but in the end, at least according to the book, he longed for a chance to go back and to make better choices. You and I have one brief opportunity, one lifetime on earth, to use our treasures to make an eternal difference. There are some people who realize this. John Wesley said, I judge all things only by the price they gain in eternity. C.T. Studd, the missionary, said, Only one life will, tune, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Someone has written, Five minutes after you die, you will know exactly how you should have lived. Well, there's some good news, though, and that is we don't have to wait until then to find out because God has revealed that in his word, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live that way now. John Wesley toured a vast estate of a proud plantation owner. They rode their horses for a long time and then only saw a fraction of the man's property. At the end of their little tour, they sat down to dinner and the owner eagerly asked, Well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? To which he replied, 
I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all of this. See, if we fear death, not just the normal fear of dying in whatever form that may take, but if we fear dying and leaving this world, there's a good indication we are storing up our treasure here. And so every day closer to there moves us farther from where our treasure is. But if we are storing up treasure in heaven, then every day moves us closer to that treasure. This is one of the premier passages in the New Testament about the subject of giving, is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll not read it all. I'll explain some of the background in a moment. Let me begin reading in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, this is your word. We approach it with humility and submissive hearts. In Christ's name, amen. As the Apostle Paul traveled, evangelizing and planting churches around the Mediterranean Ocean, he not only preached the gospel, but on his third missionary journey, as he went from place to place and he saw some of the churches that had already been started, and he revisited those to see how they were doing, he took up an offering. It was a special relief offering to help the Christians back around Jerusalem in the area called Judea. That is, if you think of a map of the Mediterranean, Judea is where is directly east of the ocean, there in the Holy Land in Israel. As he traveled north of the Mediterranean and planted churches and saw them, he took up this offering to take back to them. His purpose was not only to relieve some of their suffering, his purpose was as these Christians in Judea received this offering from their bro Christian brothers and sisters they'd never met in other parts of the world, that it would build unity in the church. Now, in chapter 8, the previous chapter, the church in Corinth had made a promise that they were going to give toward that offering. But now a year has passed and they've not fulfilled their pledge, to use our terminology. They've not fulfilled their promise. And the cause, apparently, was there was a low spirituality level in the church. When a church is not spiritually minded, it usually is not generous. So Paul here teaches about generosity and about experiencing God's grace. And so these paragraphs in chapter 9 are, like I said, one of the premier passages in the Bible that teaches us about what our attitude should be as we give to fund God's work. In Proverbs, 
it says that a generous person will receive God's grace will be poured out on them in the proportion they give out. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, A generous man will prosper, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. When I was in high school, my youth director liked to draw out on paper the meaning in Bible verses to help him in his personal study. I walked in his office one day, and he had drawn a picture of this verse from Proverbs of a man watering a plant. In fact, at the first service, I tried to refer to that little bucket, and I said, I don't, to show you how little gardening I do, I don't even know the name of that. So right before this service, somebody walked up and put this in my hand. And so the picture was this man, they still didn't tell me what to call it, they just gave it to me. This, this man, here's a plant, and he's watering, and then you have this big hand coming out of heaven watering the person who's doing the watering. And that's why I believe it's in the King James It says, he who waters will himself be watered. Now, we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is preached, especially on TV today, by many. And that is that it is unquestionably God's will for you that you be healthy and wealthy, well, at least those two. They don't really care about being wise. But that you be healthy and wealthy. That his will for you is that you not suffer any sickness or illness and that you not have any financial struggles. And so, basically, if you do have either of those two, it's an issue you don't have enough faith and you need to appropriate. And, oh, by the way, you probably need to help fund the person who's preaching that, that message, too. Now, we call that the prosperity gospel. In many ways, it's heretical. It, you don't see that in the life of Paul. You don't see it in the message of Jesus. You don't find that in the New Testament. It's aberrant. But you do find what we might could call reciprocal blessing, where God promises that as we give, we will also receive. Christ said it himself, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over. And he says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But that does not mean that if you give $10 to God's work that you should expect to get $20 back. In receiving and giving, it may be God's grace, it may be his blessing on your life. There's no guarantee there. There's no promise on the part of God that it's financial, that it's tit for tat in a sense. But as we give, we know that God gives to us in a variety of forms. And so we stand to give by our giving. That's what Paul's saying. That's the main thing he's saying here in chapter chapter 9. Now, here's the life principle in verse 6. In fact, he even says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. All of life is testimony to this principle. Here's the picture. The farmer looks out at his fields, and there are no crops, but he does not just look out and sit there and complain and go, oh me, oh my, there are no crops in the field. No, he goes out and he starts to grow. He sows seed. And the, the point here and in life is you always reap in proportion to what you sow. If you sow five acres, do you expect to reap ten acres? No. If you sow ten acres, do you expect to reap twenty acres? No. You reap in proportion to what you sow. If you sow five acres, you reap five acres. So what you sow, you will reap. So the point is, the amount of the sowing determines the amount of the harvest. That's, the, that's what's being said in verse 6. And so the farmer 
views the, the work of sowing as an opportunity. As an opportunity. And so we should view giving and generous giving as an opportunity. But the attitude is important. So beginning in verse 7, he tells us how we should not give. Because our motives are important in our giving. We are not to give reluctantly, he says. That is out of guilt. Uh, reluctant that we're having to, to part with this. Or we're not to give under compulsion. In other words, worried about what others will think about us if we don't. Both of these attitudes, giving reluctantly and giving out of compulsion, rob giving of the joy that should be there. So what is your motive? How are your motives in your giving? Is it as though God is trying to squeeze every last blood out of you, every last drop of blood, and you view it like that? Or is there gratitude and joy? But we are to give, it says, as he has decided in his heart. Maturity comes also in giving. We recognize that as Christians grow, we should grow in maturity in the areas of prayer and in obedience to the Lord and in our understanding and study of God's Word. That we would not expect a one-week-old Christian to be where the ten-year-old Christian is as far as maturity in those areas. Well, in the area of generosity and giving, we also have great room to grow. So even as a new Christian, I wanted to give. I, that was one of the most immediate changes God brought in my life as a, as a high school student. I wanted to give, but as I look back, it was zealous and it was sincere, but often it wasn't real wise on where the giving went and, and exactly how I did it. And so hopefully there comes some maturity in our lives about this as we grow in this area. So let me give you a few in the minutes. Let me give you a few in the minutes I have, a few observations about being a cheerful giver. Verse 7, I think, says you will become more cheerful in your giving by realizing that it allows you to experience God's love. And the reason is we imitate God at this point. When we give with generosity, we reflect God's character in a very unique way because he is a giver. We literally bring pleasure to God by giving cheerfully. Doesn't that sound weird? He loves a cheerful giver. When I was a child, my mother and father would take me and my sister, who was two years older, uh, they would take us to church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I lived early, early years. And I don't remember much about it, except it was formal. It was the only time during the week I dressed up with clothes like this, even little kids we did at that time. And I would sit there in the pew. It's the only place I went where there were pews. And my dad would sit on my left, and then my sister would be over here. And my dad was there to run interference with us. My mom sometimes would be in the choir. Sometimes she'd be seated with us. Now, this is kindergarten age. This is like pre-kindergarten and kindergarten age. I remember two things that stick out in my mind about those experiences. One is, while we, I was sitting there, my dad would give me two things. He'd give me a cert. <laughs> He'd hand me the little foil package, and I could peel one off. Do they even make these things anymore? That's, that's what I remember from church as a child was a cert. And he would give me a coin to put in the offering plate when it, come, when it came by. Now, this was huge. To time that to a child, where else do you go see offering plates? And we didn't have walls in our pews like we do here. So the, 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 the plate would start at one end and it would come. Man, you had to time that thing. 
I mean, for a child, everything wrote on this, and to be able to drop that in and then watch it disappear down there, and then wherever they took it, you know, didn't know where it went from that point. Later, when I came to faith in Christ, I looked back at that, and I thought, you know, that was kind of critical. I said, that's not a way to teach a child to give. I didn't work for that money. I didn't do anything for that. My dad handed me that money, and I put it in the offering plate. But then, not long ago, I revisited that, and I thought, you know, that is the purest form of giving. My Father gives to me, and I give to others. And so now my Heavenly Father gives to me. Here, Chip, here's some money to put in the plate, and then I give to others. So it enables us, as we give generously, to experience God's love. Secondly, according to verse 8, as we give cheerfully, it opens the windows of God's blessing. Look at verse 8 with me. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Note the word all, not some. It doesn't say he's able to make some grace abound to you so that in having some sufficiency in some things, it says all. Paul is reassuring these skeptical Christians that God will bless them with more than they give out. Now, that is why giving is a test of our faith. It's a faith issue because the issue is, am I trusting God to take care of me? Can I give generously and trust him to meet my needs? And Paul is saying, God is trustworthy. Now, I am still amazed that the, that the highest example of giving that we have in the New Testament, in the Gospels, was the widow with two coins. We're not even told her name. If you remember the story, Jesus and the disciples are kind of opposite the temple. On the outer courtyard at the temple, there were these metal funnels of sorts where people would drop in their offerings. And those were they were designated giving. <laughs> the receptacle determined what it would be used for. And so they were made out of metal, and as people brought their money and it was metal, a large amount made a lot of noise. And so a large donor could draw a lot of attention to himself. And the disciples are sitting there, and they begin to ask Jesus about what people are giving. And this widow comes up that we're not even told her name. She drops in two coins, the smallest coins of the day. And Jesus teaches his disciples and said, You see her? She put in more than all the others because she gave everything. In other words, she took her last two cents, though they weren't pennies, they were something else. She gave it. Now, I don't know if any of us in this room with any kind of financial sense, would encourage a widow, and there was no Social Security or insurance in those days, would we encourage a widow to give away her last money? That's it. From all indication, that was it. It was final, and she drops it, so to speak, in the offering plate. If she had been your mother, would you have been happy about it? You probably would have walked around the scene and said, I need to talk to the person in charge. I need to get two coins back. I'm not trying to be humorous, but that, I just, it, to, you can look at it and say, that was irresponsible. Now, why then did Jesus compliment her? I think the reason was her giving was truly an act of faith. Her dropping her coins in that receptacle was a statement, not to other people, but to God, that, Lord, you are going to take care of me. And I know that. It wasn't, let's cast caution to the wind. You know, let's just don't care about anything. It was an act of faith. Mature giving is an act of faith. So that when I give, I'm doing it with the recognition, Lord, you're going to take care of me. 
And as he does, it says, you will abound in every good work. Third, you'll be more cheerful in your giving when you realize it brings spiritual blessing to the giver. It says in verse 10, he will supply seed. Think back. What's the picture? Sowing and reaping. Here's the farmer. He's looking at his fields. And we tend to think, who supplies the seed? Well, I supply the seed. Or my paycheck supplies the seed. This says, no, even the seed you're going to sow in that field, God gave it to you. God gives us the seed to sow. He gives us the finances to give with which to be generous. And as we trust him, it says he will multiply what we have. Give you one more father story. Before Barbara and I headed to seminary, we had tried to start a course where she was going to work. Her degree was a, as a registered di- she was a registered dietitian out of college. She was going to work. It ended up being in a hospital there where I was in seminary. I was going to go to school. My father wanted to talk to me about our plans. So whenever he wanted to talk to me, we'd go to a cafeteria, uh, Morrison's. We don't have Morrison's here, right? We have S&S, which is ten times better. Jimmy here today? No, I don't see Jimmy. But we would sit there, and we would talk. That's where we talked shop. And he said, okay, how, how are you planning to do this? Well, uh, Barbara's going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go to school. And he could tell I was kind of working my plan, and I was anxious about my plan, and I was worried about my plan. And he listened, and he said, after he'd listened to it for quite a while, he said, well, you're forgetting something, aren't you? I'm like, I'm going to look at my paper, you know, I'm like, what about, he said, I said, what? He said, you've got me. Meaning, if you can't make ends meet, I'm going to help you. Don't forget that. Well, I, I don't hear my dad's voice, and it's not God's voice, but I often think when I'm worried and I'm anxious and I'm violating what God says and what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about being fearful and anxious, as though I hear, you're forgetting something, aren't you? You've got me. You've got a Heavenly Father who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food and so forth. So we should look at, I think, as God supplies to us, when we have income, we have windfall, when we, have, we come into something, then rather than immediately saying, oh, great, this is for me to spend on what I want, and maybe it is, but to say, this is seed God just put in my hand, am I supposed to sow it? Maybe it's $5 or $100 or $1,000. Do you ask yourself, why has God given this to me? Why has he put this seed in my hand? So are you predisposed? I think as a mature giver, you and I should be predisposed in a generous mode. We should be predisposed in giving. I think you have to decide now before you have it. Some of you young people, some of you teenagers, some of you young adults... You may not believe this right now, but before your life is over, God is probably going to entrust large sums of money into your hands. And you're probably sitting there saying, yeah, right. No, yeah. Many of us in this room could bear testimony to how that happens. It will be either through your work or some way that you did not expect. You need to decide now, now, beforehand, how will I use that when I get it? Let me give you a simple, very simple story. A number of years ago, one of my daughters and her husband had to move. They were going to school. So I purchased his car he had, it was, and I said, I'll sell the car. Y'all go on so you don't have to fool with it. I think it was $900. That's what I remember. 
So I said, I'll sell it. So I kind of had it in the driveway, and then went, we went to Cuba on a mission trip. And in Cuba, we found out about these Christian baseball teams that are kind of like our Fellowship of Christian Athletes that travel all over the island at certain seasons of the year, and they play baseball, and they give evangelistic testimonies, these Cubans that have these teams. And you could sponsor one of these teams for $1,500. That would buy the equipment, that would pay the travel, that would produce the literature that would be given out. And the evangelistic results were phenomenal. How many thousands of people would hear the gospel through one of these teams? It cost $1,500 at the time to sponsor a team. And so I'm thinking, well, I'd like to, we'd like to sponsor one of these teams. So I'm sitting at my desk on a Saturday morning, and I say, Lord, if you'll call, cause that car to be sold, and it had been in the penny pension for a couple of weeks, this is pre-Craigslist, folks, that I knew about anyway, it's on penny pincher, and nobody's called. I said, if you'll bring somebody to buy that car, I'll give that $900 for one of those baseball teams. Two hours later, I'm looking at $900 bills on my desk. The guy's come by and bought the car. I prayed around 9 a.m., now it's 11. Guess what's going through my mind? Man, what could I do with that? I could do this, I could do that, I could do that. But had there not been a decision made earlier that I really felt, I've got to do this, it never would have happened. I would not have been predisposed. I don't think it would have happened. It's funny, the next morning, I mentioned that here at the church. I don't remember what the sermon was, but I jammed it in. <laughs> and one of you, leaving the church, walked up to me and said, that is hilarious, and handed me a check for 600 and said, do the whole team. I think we need a predisposed, a predisposition to giving. And also need to wrap this up. Uh, last of all, verses 11 and 12 talk about how as we give, praise and thanks is multiplied to God. What that means is as we, we give and people come to faith in Christ, our giving results in more praise to God, more worshipers, more thanks to God being happened. If you are a Christian here today, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, it is because somebody somewhere at some time gave some money. We don't talk like that a lot in church, and it sounds kind of, it sounds a little crass, but somebody somewhere gave some money. I was privileged to lead a guy to Christ back at the University of Arkansas when I was a campus minister, and he married a young woman from Little Rock, both strong Christians by that time, and he and his wife, when I last talked to him a few years ago on the phone, were helping to start a PCA church in Michigan. In Michigan. And I thought, humanly speaking, that church is getting started, or is established now, because I had the privilege to lead Bill to Christ because some woman in Birmingham I never met gave the money to the PCA Foundation, which then went to Reformed University Ministries, for me to serve for two years as an RUF campus minister. So in that sense, that woman in Birmingham had a part in planting the church in Michigan, that PCA church. Last February at our missions conference, we heard from Leo McGilley and her service of Wycliffe Bible translators about the Shilluk people, the people in the southern part of Sudan, which is in the northern part of Africa, that for over 20 years, Wycliffe had been working on a language, had been working on that language to translate it, to have a Bible in their, a printed Bible in their language. They never had one. And through this congregation, 80 
plus thousand dollars was given, that was all they needed to print it to be able to distribute it. The printing is almost, I think it has been finished, and they're waiting to be distributed, which should happen within the next three months. In fact, some here may go over for that. I looked on Wikipedia, the Shillic people, the people that speak that language is 175,000 people. A drop in the bucket as far as most languages go. But 175,000 people who are about to get the Bible, a printed Bible, in their language for the first time ever. I look forward in heaven to meeting brothers and sisters who speak Shillock, who came to faith in Christ by someone preaching or teaching or them reading this Bible that's now printed because of the work of Wycliffe translators and the years they put into it, and some of you that gave the money to print it. That's what Paul's saying, that our generosity results in praise, multiplied praise and thanks to God. So I think mature giving recognizes that. I don't, when Barbara and I commit to this church and tithe and when we give, I don't think about, oh, a portion of this is going to print the bulletin or pay the light bills or pay the health insurance benefits for staff members. That's, that's all necessary. I think about, we are pastoring Pleasant Hill neighborhood. Tom Anderson told me the other day, I was telling him about our statistics tend to stay the same, about how many people attend worship here. And Tom, who pastors Strong Tower, said, Chip, y'all should add the numbers of Strong Tower every Sunday. Put the 150 that are with us, he said, with y'all, because he said, we would not be here, we could not continue, and we have no future if it's not for First Presbyterian Church. And he said, we pray for y'all every week because we are completely dependent on that church. So we are y'all's ministry. What is that? That is giving that multiplies praise and thanks to God. Well, I'm out of time. But as we come now to the end of the service, I view this as a covenant renewal, a time to turn in one of these cards. It's a time not just to turn in a card, but to renew my commitment to the membership vows here at the church. And so I hope you'll view it as that. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll stand and sing the selected verses of the church's one foundation. I ask during that time for our members, if you're prepared, that you would come and give a covenant renewal through turning in your membership card. Let's pray your uh, pledge card. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you do supply seed for the sowing and, and bread for food, and we ask that we might grow to be more mature, not just being givers, sacrificial givers, but, but giving generously, giving joyfully, from all that you've given because we are doing it as an expression of our faith that you will supply for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.